In the summer of 1975, when I was six years old, my older brother took me to see a film called Cornbread Earl and Me. The film centers around the story of Nathaniel Cornbread Hamilton. That's my friend Cornbread. Man, he's the greatest. He's played by Jamal Wilkes, who was then a forward for the Golden State Warriors. He's going to college, he's got offers from the pros, and everybody knows he's going to make it. Cornbread is a rising neighborhood basketball star who's on the verge of winning an athletic scholarship to college when he's gunned down by the police in a case of mistaken identity. He dies in the street, sparking a riot as community members come out and see his body. In an attempt to cover up their mistake, the police department orchestrates a campaign of intimidation. They depict Cornbread as a gang member who was fleeing the scene of a crime. The plot culminates in Wilford, a teenager who's played by a 14-year-old Lawrence Fishburne, taking the stand in an inquiry. Wilford tells the judge exactly what happened, despite the threats his family has received. And those two cops... They runs into the street. And it looks like they yelled something. They shoot. And they shoot Cornbread. They killed Cornbread and he wasn't doing nothing. All he was doing was he was just going home. I've thought of that film any number of times over the years, but never so intently as I did earlier this year when 17-year-old Darnella Frazier took the stand in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Chauvin was the Minneapolis police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck for 9 minutes and 29 seconds on Memorial Day of last year, until Floyd was dead. Among those testifying today, Darnella Frazier, the young woman who filmed the now viral cell phone video of the incident. I have a Black father, I have a Black brother, I have Black friends. And I I look at that, and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more. The film Cornbread Earl and Me was released on May 21st, 1975 almost exactly 45 years before Frazier videotaped the brutal scene of Chauvin asphyxiating Floyd. Yet the film contains a tragic, almost predictive resonance. This is not because of prescience on the part of the director or screenwriter, but because the issue of police violence and racism was even by 1975 so familiar that the story could yield truths that we find recognizable to this day. Six-year-old me was moved and frightened by what I saw on the screen. But I had no way of knowing I would spend a great deal of my professional career reporting and writing about cases like the one depicted in the film. I'm Jelani Cobb. I'm the Ira A. Lippman Professor at Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This is How We Got Here a podcast that takes a step back to look at the pressing issues facing journalists today. Race, class, immigration, gender. As journalists, we like to say we're writing the first draft of history. But if we don't know our own history, 
we run the risk of misinterpreting what we see and what we hear, of not being able to connect the dots. So this podcast is an attempt to talk about context, about how we got here, why we got here, and possibly what all, or at least some, of this means. This is Episode 1, The Half-Life of Democracy. Joining me now is Dr. Khalil Mohammed, a historian and professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as the author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Urban America. Welcome, Khalil. Hey, Jelani. It's great to be here. So I think that there's a lot that we can talk about with this subject. And because it's such a sprawling subject that I think it's probably best to start with one specific moment and then expand out from there to the rest of the conversation about race, crime, criminal justice, violence, and the kind of cyclical dynamic that we have seen too many times in American history. So talk to me about where you were and the context in which you first saw the video shot by 17-year-old Darnella Frazier that depicted the final moments of George Floyd's life. Well, it's interesting uh, that it wasn't the video that I first encountered the news. It was from a a cousin of mine who lives in the Bryant neighborhood where George Floyd was killed. He sent me a text very late at night, and it said essentially that a Black man had been lynched by the police in his neighborhood. That's what led me to see the video. And I think the most striking aspect of watching it for the first time was seeing Derek Chauvin's face as he stared very calmly into the faces of Darnella Frazier and half a dozen other people pleading for him to stop killing George Floyd. And there was something about the look on his face that for me, from that very first moment of seeing the video, I thought to myself, he's killing him to spite them. To spite them for telling him what he shouldn't do, what he can't do, for interfering with his police business. I have a lot more thoughts, but that's how I felt when I first saw that video. What was the conversation with your cousin like? Did you talk to him after he sent the text message? I did. And uh, we talked a lot that summer uh, a year ago because he saw this killing through the lens of housing gentrification. He saw it as a predictable response to the displacement of Black people in a rapidly changing community and the increasing use of police to do that work. Hmm. So, Cleo, as shocking and gruesome as the video of George Floyd's death was, it wasn't unique. There's almost a genre of these videos that you can find on the internet now involving mostly African-Americans dying at the hands of police. Can you talk to me a little bit about the context in which our criminal justice system arose and how we got to this place? Yeah, so that's that's a big question. And in many ways, it has animated 
nearly every aspect of American society. I mean, that's one of the great ironies of it. I mean, so if we look at the colonial period, nearly every southern colony actually, along with northern colonies, passed Negro codes or slave codes as some of the first legislation, particularly uh, in the mid to late 17th century, just as things were being worked out in terms of who would do what and how power would be distributed. And these codes essentially criminalized any form of Black independence or autonomy, any effort to carve a life beyond the work of the enslaved, whether on a plantation or in a household, was subject to something as simple as where two, three, or more are gathered would be by law a crime. This means no more than two or three African Americans could gather in one place. That's right, exactly. Simple things like bartering, handmade, uh, clothing, foodstuffs from the bounty of the harvest that they had worked that were they were entitled to based on what they had agreed upon with the landowners would be subject to criminalization. So every aspect of Black life from the colonial period to the antebellum period that wasn't defined as productive work for the purposes uh, of enslavement was subject to criminalization and some kind of sanction. And you know this, of course, because even the Constitution itself allows for the Fugitive Slave Act to be inscribed into that founding document, which meant, by definition, Black people in search of freedom as runaways uh, were subject to federal law and sanction. Fugitive slave clause in the Constitution only got more strict over time. And by 1850, all but deputized all of white America to return the so-called property of white landowners, that is, of people of African descent, back to their rightful quote-unquote owners. So it's hard to talk today about the aberration of unarmed killings or to define it as such without looking at the deep roots of this form of law enforcement as a form of racial control. And of course, after slavery, it does evolve and it changes. And you could even say after the civil rights movement, it evolves and it changes. And so contrary to some criticisms, I am not arguing that it is an unbroken sameness from the 1600s to 2020. Let's unpack that a little bit. We have the end of the Civil War, the emancipation of four million people who had been enslaved at the beginning of the war, three quarters of a million people dead, tremendous upheaval and change, and what looks like a new beginning. But we also see the beginning of a new relationship with the criminal justice system for people who have just been emancipated. Can you talk to me a little bit about what all is happening then in that period after 1865? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> the the Confederates lost and quickly— Are you sure about that? 
<laughs> well, that's a good question. Yeah, they they did in fact lose uh, on the battlefields. Let's just be clear about that. They lost and surrendered at Appomattox. App- I always mess it up. Say it for me. Appomattox. <laughs> Appomattox. <laughs> that's funny. Um, yes, they lost. Those they, those those cats lost. You know, I want to say something else, but anyway, to borrow a Brian Stevenson, they <laughs> they won the narrative war of racial difference. Mm. Please welcome back to the stage. A short notice, Brian Stevenson. <laughs> we live with the legacy of slavery. The great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to legitimate it. It's the ideology of white supremacy that we made up to make ourselves feel comfortable with enslaving people who were black. They quickly regrouped around this notion that they could use the instrument of the criminal justice system as the blunt tool of suppression and essentially redefine Black freedom after slavery as subjected to all forms of criminal sanction. Everything from simply being unemployed, trying to... Wait, what do you mean simply uh, being unemployed? Was it illegal to be unemployed? It was illegal to be unemployed, that's right. The vagrancy statute of what became known as the Black Codes, which were passed in every Southern state, uh, the former Confederacy, gave maximum discretion to landowners as employers to control the movement of their, in this case, employees or former slaves. You know, people moved around a bit, so sometimes people were, in fact, on the same plantations they had once worked as enslaved people. Mm. Nevertheless, if there was a dispute over wages, over the terms of settlement for Uh, the portion of the harvest that would go to cover debt in these quote-unquote sharecropping arrangements, if you said, all to hell with it, keep your money, I'm not working for you any longer, the minute you stepped off that plantation, you could be picked up as a vagrant because you could not show proof of employment. So yes, unemployment by definition in this moment under the Black Codes was a criminal offense. So it seems to me like this is about the creation of another system of forced labor. Another mechanism to maintain dominance over the labor of Black people. Absolutely. And it's naked power. It's not, I mean, it's almost as unfiltered. I guess it depends on what kind of journalist you are. But (laughs) I mean, if you're looking at voter suppression bills spring up across the country, in the quote-unquote name of voter integrity, but voter fraud is a problem in search of a solution. Or I should say, voter integrity is a solution in search of a problem. Voter fraud doesn't exist to substantiate the need for voter integrity laws. So these are voter suppression bills. Mm. What Southerners would say at the time is they had a criminal class that were no longer under the supervision of the dominant white plantation elite or landholding class. And so since these uncouth Negroes were now free to roam the countrysides of the South, they had to change these laws in order to keep them in their place, in order to maintain control over a dangerous class of people. So 
if you borrow the language of those who were writing the laws, that's what they said was going on. But we as historians know that it was just a form of a political economy of punishment to ensure that landowners would have maximum leverage over their formerly enslaved population. So let's move forward into the 20th century. There's this thing called the Great Migration. Millions of people around the time of World War I begin leaving the South and going to the North and the Midwest, leaving rural environments and going into cities. How does this relationship change as a result of that? Well, the forced labor problem overreached, so to speak, and Black people voted with their feet. They left the South increasingly as a result of World War I and the simultaneous pull of job openings. The war had created the need for more industrial labor and at the same time had caused a secession in European immigration. And so that great pull of work opportunities to northern cities had Black folks being pushed out literally one step ahead of a lynch mob. Mm. And as a result, they did gain a measure of social mobility in northern cities. They had the right to vote. They were not subject to the disenfranchisement laws. But they also met intransigent resistance in terms of residential segregation And they found that at the factory gates, they were really there to do the bidding of the corporate class who were using Black workers essentially as strike breakers or as another pool of exploitable labor that they could use to discipline the white working classes. And so they were essentially first fired, last hired and first fired in this arrangement. Let me make sure I understand this. So you're saying that, you know, because of the conditions in the South, people begin leaving, coming to the North and seeking out opportunity. But here, they're kind of a disposable labor force and they're being used to undermine the claims of organized labor and unionized white workers. That's exactly right. What, what time frame are we talking about here? So the Great Migration, 1915, is sort of the official starting point. And depending on how you're counting, ends in 1970. And the big number for those decades is about 6 million people who leave the South and change the face of America by virtue of urbanization and the, and the modernization of American society that also occurs alongside this massive movement of Black people. Mm. So now I have more questions. There are millions of people who are in cities where they had not been before, large numbers of people arriving on trains virtually every day. What kind of institutions do they interact with? I know education and employment, but what are their relationships with police like? Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's an evolving relationship because on one hand, African-Americans weren't the dominant class of people to be spied upon and surveilled and, and essentially tracked. Most northern urban police forces going back to the mid-19th century, several decades before the Great Migration of African Americans, had focused their attention on a class of European immigrants that were deemed fundamentally inferior to folks who were euphemistically described as old Americans. These were people largely of so-called Anglo-Saxon heritage, somewhere in the northern regions between England and France and Germany. So these people looked down upon and saw the Irish, eventually the Italian, Eastern European, Poles, Jews from Russia, 
as people not only who were biologically inferior, this spawned the eugenics movement, for example, but also saw these folks as part of a peasant community that were being increasingly influenced by socialism and posed a real fundamental threat to the American system of capitalism. And it was that community that the police sort of organized around, the the dangerous classes, as the historian Eric Monkinen once described them, looking back upon the the literature. And you can find, you know, for example, in Harper's Magazine, images of the Irish that were drawn as simian figures. And they were meant to look closer to, say, an ape-like Negro than they were to a Europeanized Nordic white person. Mm. And that position meant that much of the Northern policing gained its technical chops, its way of doing things, keeping track of the poor immigrant and indeterminately white classes of the late 19th and early 20th century. So we're saying that when policing comes about, one of the first challenges that it confronts is controlling immigrant populations who are suspect. Absolutely. Yep. Maybe radical and maybe a little bit too sympathetic with these causes that we don't think are American. That's right. And these were folks who joined ranks in what was a late 19th century populist movement that was essentially a a national movement of labor organizing that had a brief moment of interracial possibility. And this was both on farms in the agricultural heartland of the Midwest and in the South, as well as in factories in places like Pittsburgh and Detroit and Chicago's meatpacking plants. And so policing was often working alongside private security forces in acts of spectacular violence directed at these heterogeneous populations of immigrants, you know, many of whom spoke different languages, but shared common cause around economic struggle. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, when Black folks showed up in the early Great Migration period, there was a possibility that they also would join ranks. But their color was a barrier, but also the mechanism of defining this multinational immigrant population of working class people was also about defining them as white as a process, which also meant turning to anti-Black racism as an organized strategy in Northern cities, which did then turn to police officers who found that once they used to beat down the Irish, and now the Irish police officer could beat down a Southern Negro. Mm-hmm. Are there any cities where you can talk about this transformation in particular? Sure. Chicago. Chicago, my hometown. Uh, so Chicago, by the turn of the 20th century, has about a 2% population in 1900. It's going to double every decade. By 1910, it's going to be 4%. By 1920, it's going to be 8%. It's going to continue on that train. And with each doubling of the population comes with it intensifying racial anxieties and racist behavior, of which police officers will always be part of this, but will eventually become kind of the front line or first responders to the problem of racial change happening in Chicago, as it was defined then. And so there's a moment at the end of the war, in the summer of 1919, there's a flashpoint around the killing of a 17-year-old named Eugene Williams, who, like many Black beachgoers at the time is enjoying a hot summer July in Chicago in the summer of 1919. He happens to swim across an aqueous color line, as ridiculous as that sounds, but this was the part of the beach that separated the white part from the black part that extended from the shore to the water. 
He was stoned to death by an identifiable group of whites. When black beachgoers appealed to a black officer standing on the shore, he resisted their entreaties, refused to make an arrest. And when they expressed their outrage, white beachgoers began to attack them. That attack spread into the city. Rumors ran wild, but essentially the white community began to yank black pedestrians off the street go into segregated Black parts of the South Side of Chicago to attack the Black community. Eventually, Black folks started to fight back. They armed themselves for self-defense. The National Guard was called in. The police took almost uniformly the side of white people in defense of whiteness. And at the end of the day, something like over 500 people were injured, the vast majority of whom were Black, although there were whites who were injured. Uh, 38 people were killed, 23 of whom were Black, and the overwhelming people who were arrested in the six days of this racist pogrom were Black people. And what came out of that was the first Blue Ribbon Commission to look at anti-Black policing or uh, racist police brutality. There had been one other commission before that, about 20 years before New York, that was as much about corruption as well as anti-immigrant policing. So they shared a theme in common about bad policing. But this was, if we are really to pinpoint the origins of the Great Migration period with systemic racist policing and the evidence to prove it, it's with this report that was called The Negro in Chicago, published in 1922. So let's jump forward a little bit. Today I want to tell the city of Selma. Tell them, doctor. Today I want to say to the state of Alabama. By the mid-1960s, there is a civil rights movement in full swing. There are all sorts of developments that are happening. That we are not about to turn around. Yes, sir. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we're on the move, and no wave of racism can stop us. Yet, we see riots that most notably happen in Watts in 1965. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than 100 square blocks were decimated by fire and looters. In Harlem, actually, the year before, 1964. In Harlem, the funeral of a teenager who had been shot by a policeman set off demonstrations against alleged police brutality. In Detroit in 1967. At this moment, there are at least 10 areas in town where looters have broken in and where firebombs have set fires. It looks like a B-52 raid in Detroit. Newark in 1967. The worst race riots since those two years ago in the Watts section of Los Angeles rocked New Jersey's largest city, Newark, for five consecutive days and nights. All of them connected to incidents of police use of force and violence. Talk to me a little bit about that moment and what comes out of it. Yeah, so so there's there's sort of two historical trends that are happening uh, that overlap and result in these uprisings and rebellions or what white people call riots. And that is that the problem of policing as the dominant mechanism to support the enforced segregation and the kind of northern form of white supremacist policing of black etiquette had been going on since the Great Migration period. It had never let up. 
And so from the 20s to the 30s to the 40s to the 50s and the 60s, that problem not only continued and produced, as you've already noted, a genre of police brutality reports by the decade. By the time of the 1960s, the social movement organizing of which the classic phase starts in the South, but there had never not been a Northern phase. CORE was born in the North, the March on Washington movement, which was A. Philip Randolph's movement that really Chicago was kind of the home base for it. In 1941, threatened then FDR with a massive movement to embarrass the nation for the systemic racism Black people were experiencing at a time when we were about to fight the Nazis. By the 1960s, in these uprisings, what you see is another generation of young people living in those northern ghettos saying, enough is enough. And when there is a moment of a police attack, as was true in Detroit in 67, the raid of basically what we'll call blind pigs, but these were basically house parties or rent parties that people threw in their private places, or these were speakeasies. Uh, And the police raids lock everybody up and the community is like, you know what? They just went too far. This is totally unacceptable. We're not doing anything wrong. In the case of Watts, it was the arrest of a cab driver who was then brutalized and spread throughout the community as yet another instance. Instance after instance, by that time, had combined with two generations of Black people experiencing racism and police brutality, of which (laughs) the police brutality was just the icing on the cake. And then the other thing was the heightened expectations that had come out of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, where people were expecting more for a nation to come to terms with these issues, but seemed to be unwilling to understand that what was happening outside of the South was the prelude to the civil rights era. In other words, if the civil rights movement in the South was about getting the right to vote in public accommodations, Black people in the North already had the right to vote in public accommodations, Mm -hmm. at least in the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. And so if people were going to sit on their hands and say, we passed legislation, we're done, then you weren't going to get to the economic injustice. You weren't going to get to the redlining. You weren't going to get to the segregated schools that were segregated by residents, which was segregated by redlining. You weren't going to get to what police officers were doing. And it was all of those issues that created this powder keg of combustible outrage that then tore through cities in the mid-19 to late 60s. So you and I are both old enough to remember Rodney King in 1992. Rioting, looting, and arson continued today in Los Angeles. Reports said that between 10 and 13 people have been killed and nearly 200 injured. The violence erupted after a jury acquitted four white police officers in the beating of a black man, Rodney King. And then, you know, somewhat remembering Miami, actually, in 1980. The violence broke out after a white male jury in Tampa found four white former Dade County policemen innocent in the death of black Miami businessman Arthur McDuffie. Not guilty. I guess there's a point that we've never really been that far without having these sort of crises. Uh, you talk about the dynamics of the current criminal justice system and how it is we find ourselves yet again in the moment of George Floyd encountering the same sort of problem again. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fascinating problem because just to put a fine point on it, the Negro in Chicago report 1922 essentially blames the attack on the Black community 
and the unwillingness of the Chicago Police Department to not only seek justice for Black victims of violence, racist violence in this case, but also to be neutral arbiters of law and order in the midst of a massive attack on the Black community. And they blame it on what they literally call unconscious prejudice and recommend training. Hmm. And from the 30s of a Harlem riot report that basically calls for the end of aggressive police patrol and calls for police officers to respect the human rights of Black people, then leads to the Kerner recommendations that call for citizen review boards. We find ourselves then in the 1990s with the introduction in the wake of the Rodney King beating of pattern and practice investigations by the Department of Justice, which can then lead to consent decrees, which are essentially agreements between the DOJ and police departments to agree to a set of reforms that will be then subject to federal monitoring, at which point, once they've met those stipulations, the agency would no longer be under some kind of DOJ supervision. So when you ask the question, how are we to make sense of the deeply rooted ongoing crisis of racist policing in America? The only thing I can come up with looking at the fact that we have all of this archival and federal evidence from pattern and practice investigations that numbers almost 100 is that white people, at least at this point in 2021, haven't decided that they want police officers to behave any differently than they always have. Hmm. because the evidence of what it is and the calls for reform to it are not new. The obvious thing I think people will say on the other side is, wait, I saw millions of people out in the streets last year for weeks or even in some cases, months on end. And lots of those people were white. George Floyd! What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George Floyd! I don't see no right here. Why are you crying here? I don't see no right here. Why are you crying here? So does that mean that there's no progress that's been made? Uh, No, not at all. But progress is measured by degrees, uh, not by, you know, (laughs) on and off switches. That's a terrible metaphor. So we'll we'll try that again. (laughs) (laughs) Mixed metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, no, it doesn't mean there's no progress. It's just we have to be mindful that progress has to be measured beyond the moment in which people take to the streets. Hmm. Protest is the predicate for change, but it isn't the change. And therefore, I think it's reasonable to say there are more white Americans today than perhaps at any point in history that believe something needs to change. Uh, But what that something is so far looks to be mostly symbolic and mostly seems to be the low-hanging fruit that still suggests that our current law enforcement community are capable of policing themselves. For me, it's kind of like expecting the fossil fuel industry to solve the climate change crisis. Hmm. It's just not going to happen. We need a regulatory state 
to take over the voluntary nature of reform where we ask people to change their hearts and minds, to police themselves, to do better, to pay attention and training. I mean, you know, you look at the Minneapolis Police Department, it had followed every recommendation for change that was evidence-based and, and rooted in science. And still, George Floyd was killed in broad daylight by three officers directly smothering him to death and another one who stood by in defense of what was happening. So does that mean that kind of these efforts at reform are doomed to failure? Well, I think that reform's a tricky thing. We could semantically describe reform as everything, including firing an entire department, giving it a new name, like the Department of Public Safety or the Department of Community Well-Being, and then restaffing it with unarmed people. And that could still be a reform. So it really depends on what we're talking about. And that's going to be more or less 18,000 agencies figuring out how they're going to respond to this moment. So I do think that, quote unquote, reform is possible in many instances. What I am skeptical of is whether or not that reform will be subjected to different standards of accountability that are subject to legal changes and other kinds of things that we know make a difference. So qualified immunity, of course, is probably the most discussed at this time, which essentially removes the protective barrier that essentially gives cops a license to kill as a matter of occupational duty where, okay, they may make mistakes here and there, but they shouldn't end up in prison for them. That's one example. The other is the definition of reasonable force, which has been a law enforcement standard. So you ask police officers what reasonable force is, and then they get to testify and say, I would have shot the guy too. And so that's not accountability. So one example of this, to be very specific, would be there have long been calls for citizen review boards with independent subpoena power which would mean that they would hold the right to question under oath law enforcement officers and then hold them accountable if they perjured themselves. Assuming they did not perjure themselves, then we'd get closer to the truth much faster rather than through FOIA requests, advocacy, videotapes, and all the things that are right now a roll of the dice as they come together. George Floyd's case is a perfect example of this. Almost no one watching that trial and certainly no legal commentator weighing in on the consequences of that trial wouldn't say this was a perfect coming together of the best kind of evidence and testimony to seek conviction of an officer. But is that the only mechanism for justice? Well, it most certainly shouldn't be. Hmm. One of the things that we saw in this trial was that lots of police officers testified against Derek Chauvin. And that's highly unusual. Sir, based on your review of the body-worn camera footage, uh, do you have an opinion as to when the restraint of Mr. Floyd should have ended in this encounter? Yes. What is it? When Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended their restraint. And there was a almost nine-minute video of the act in question, which is more often a shooting, which is a split-second decision, as opposed to one that is drawn out over the course of many minutes. Is the George Floyd situation so atypical as to not really be predictive of what the future might look like on issues of policing? Or does the fact that there was a conviction and a kind of universal condemnation of those actions suggests we may be turning a corner. 
I think that we just don't know. <laughs> I mean, who could have predicted, right, that after the Fair Housing Act is passed in 1968, that Nixon would run on a law and order campaign and then we would build the biggest, most racist criminal justice system the world has ever known. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, let's just be honest. And so while we certainly have the responsibility to do the best with the evidence we have in front of us, the news as it breaks, the facts that we can know today, and then try, in your case, and for those listening to this, to report the facts and to make the most salient interpretations of those facts, it is impossible to know whether George Floyd will go down as a moment when we could measure change. I mean, the other historical example, which is commonly used at this moment, but I think I I mention it from a slightly different angle, is the Emmett Till murder. In the Emmett Till murder trial, the all-white jury has acquitted the two white defendants accused of killing the 14-year-old Negro youth. You could not have predicted on any given day that it happened to be Emmett Till's brutalized, drowned body that would, for a particular moment in time in 1955, be seared into the memories of Black young Southerners and then set them on a path to say, I'm going to be part of something that will be different for me than it was for my parents. And that that energy and effort led to the civil rights movement. But we now know, looking back on the civil rights movement, that so much of the infrastructure that came with the success of the movement was insufficient to deal with these systems of racism. One, because the civil rights movement did not require outcomes as a measure of change. It simply changed the laws to catch up with the 14th Amendment that had been passed 100 years before. Mm -hmm. And two, the civil rights movement could not have imagined, as no social movement can, the evolution of racist responses to change or what we might generally call backlash. Mm -hmm. Just like the abolitionists could not have imagined that with the end of the Civil War, with Reconstruction would be the emergence of a whole new class of citizens of the United States who became properly known as the Ku Klux Klan or white terrorist groups that had the sanction of elected officials all across the country. So I think people listening to this podcast have to write with some humility and have to ask questions with some humility. We cannot know what is to come. All we can know is that there are people working really hard to imagine something different, are making demands for those changes. And then we should be looking for the how elected officials respond to those changes. That, to me, is the only measure, ultimately, of whether or not this will be substantial. And then whether or not those legislative fixes stay on the books two years, three years, five years, ten years from now. Well, one last question. Is there anything about the long view of history that illuminates the moment we're in in a way that maybe just the current events perspective might not yield? Yeah, that's a good question. That is that most white Americans have set out holding their own elected officials accountable for the kind of justice, the kind of accountability the kind of dignity that they expect for their own loved ones and their own children. 
they've sat on the sidelines. And some of them have offered their support when Black people put their bodies on the line. And we saw a lot of that this summer. They joined in in Portland and so many other places. But history would suggest that in a nation where you think of 40% of white America has consistently opposed any form of racial justice, time immemorial, period. (laughs) And that's a generous number. Mm-hmm. And so to get from 40 to 60 has often meant Black people making huge sacrifices, the kind of sacrifices that for you and me, spending time in Harlem drive people crazy. And they, they literally run around speaking out against all the terrors of racism, both real and perceived, because it's traumatizing. And to me, the long view of history, if this moment is to break with that past, is to say, what does it mean to be a white American standing on the sidelines? The protests last summer ended. I'm back to work. And whose life really matters in this country? And what am I willing to do to make sure that Black people's lives matter enough, even when it's not in my own self-interest? That is the, the, the brass ring we haven't gotten to yet. Well, Khalil, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jelani. How We Got Here is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism in partnership with Columbia Journalism Review. This episode was created by me, Jelani Cobb. Joanne Farion is our producer. Meg Britton-Mellish and Ali Pichon are our associate producers. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard. Additional audio engineering by Jim Battelle and A.J. Mangone. Winnie O'Kelly is our executive producer and dean of academic affairs here at the J School. Original theme music, The Lens, by Peter Leonard. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Leon Herder created our podcast logo. Junie Chun is our production coordinator. Special thanks to Dolores Barkley, Andre Wood, Donna Marabi, Andrew Lina, Laura Muha, and Michelle Wilson. You can find other episodes, additional resources, and a full list of music and other credits at hwgh.org. That's hwgh.org.